we're talking about teenagers today and I guess that's what's got me thinking about old friendships and I guess more than friendship uh, I've been thinking about those people in my life who once met open you school you and grow you listen to this list somewhat chronological John Steve Jeremy Jason Rob Alex Keith Jeffrey Ian Alexandra Christian Jenny Jeannie Johnston Jocelyn Ian Robert Ken Jennifer Stephen Josh Christine Kevin Claudia Julie My name is Jeff Tut. Today on the podcast, Dr. Betty Marenko talks with Massey. Welcome to Generation Poetry, episode three, The Italian Job. Interesting. Yeah, of course. There was so much uh, crazy creativity. Actually, you know, sorry, I'm just digressing, but there is an, a new Instagram feed. Uh, right. Which is, is called That's So CSM. And there is someone taking photograph of just this random, weird and wonderful um, creatures at Central San Martin with this unbounded creativity and the way they dress is just so and inspiring. You know, I was actually talking the other day with, uh, with Jeff and Julie to say, I is the, was the first time I came there, and for me there right. was a sense of uh, I don't know how to put it. It was almost like a sense of fluidity mm. in almost like in this micro city with its own dynamic, which was not kind of the art school as in academia. No, no, neither no, the it's academia. not. It was like almost like a liminal space in between that I really find uh, quite mind-blowing. I didn't want to leave. I was like, can I find a way to stay I here mean, a bit I mean, if longer? you're a student there, you want to go to class uh, with, uh, you know, your face uh, painted black, uh, that's fine. It's wonderful. Everything goes, everything. I see the most incredible sights. Uh, so it's a constant source of uh, amazement, inspiration, and uh, hope. Yeah. Really? I wonder what would have happened to my life if I had that at that age so where I Martin felt... No, but really, but, but I know, but you know what I mean? You know, like when you are of thinking, course. am I right, am I wrong, to be in a place where of course. Uh, it's really impossible to find what's right and wrong. Because actually, um, I saw a girl this morning that is studying um, the art decoratorial stuff at St. Mm-hmm. St. Martin, mm-hmm. and she looked really so conventionally, you know, Jacket, certainly not a central Saint Martin, and thus I thought he made her so central Saint Martin, yeah, which I thought yeah, was really there such is, a le- meta level. There is there. everything, and of course, some students might even say, "Are we like this because we are a central yeah, Saint Martin, yeah. or is central Saint Martin like this because we are here?" I like that, Betty. Okay. I have to say there were so many interesting things in, in this conversation. I don't know how I'm gonna, if maybe I'm gonna refer to some of them as we talk, as and maybe you I want. can refer, refer it as. You said, or you wrote, or you, you know, something like that. Because there's so many. I took, you know, endless note. And I think beside this conversation, I might have to pick your brain on a couple of things of course, because that's why I'm here. they were not what I was ex- expecting. 
in a, in, a, in a good way, but I think there are views that I'm really fascinated about. So I'm really, you know, it's really a pleasure to, to ask you a question today. Um, uh, yes, I love this idea of seeking beauty and this, uh, oh, I like, well, there's many things I like, but I like this idea I, of did boundaries. You, did you notice I wrote something just for you? <laughs> Which one was that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. The Produci Consuma Crepa is beautiful because <laughs> you said the last it's time and a, I loved in, it. In the reference. You know, it sounds so much service. better than in English. It's like a consuma, Produci Consuma Crepa. And, you know, I think it's, it, is big. It can be translated. No, but I like when you say, are we okay? I like when you say, um, when you talk about boundaries, which I agree with you, is this, you know, it's not everything goes, but this idea of yes and rather no but, and this may be. It's really cool, this... Uh... Because uh, the book I'm writing, uh, I've changed the title, it's no longer called Digital Uncertainty, it's called uh, The Power of Maybes. Yes. So I'm really exploring that also physical space, uh, that space of also ambiguity, where both the yes and the no might coexist, and it's also a space of uh, hesitation, of uh, waiting to see what happens, rather than uh, immediately coming up with the expected answer. So, and holding that space, uh, and it's the space of maybes. And it's very interesting because you say in one other point that I really find fascinating when you talk about the us being expected to consume. And in a way, I kind of never reflected on the fact that really institution like educational institution think how much you're going to make you earn. You know, do I, am I going to give you a future as uh, the ability to earn? And that idea of taking risk. Mm. And the maybe, you know, for me, it was quite interesting. That was. I thought. mean, this has been uh, actually discussed uh, also in our universities very recently, partly because it's an ongoing conversation mm. uh, about uh, the commodification of education per se. But the government just published last week uh, a report on uh, education, which was highly expected because uh, it took over 18 months to be produced. And uh, they also create a ranking uh, in this document uh, concerning uh, um, the different disciplines that people can study. Art and design uh, is at the very bottom because the value of education is uh, immediately equated with uh, the potential earning that students will uh, have given the particular course of study, which it's understandable when uh, Education is considered an investment of uh, time, effort, uh, but especially a financial investment. So the return of these things we call education has to be equally a financial transaction. So my education as a student will have a value and uh, myself as an individual, I will have a value according to the earning potential that I can demonstrate. And how do you think that applies to Central St. Martin? Because Central St. Martin is not your typical academic organization. Of course right? not. Of course. Art and design are located in a different uh, environment. That's why, according to the government report, uh, art and design, yeah. it's at the very bottom. Because what makes a, an, an artist, a designer, a creative person so interesting is also 
I'm not saying they don't think about earning, of course not, but they might arrive at a good earning potential through a very interesting, unorthodox path, which includes a lot of working for passion, working as a freelance, not having a proper job that you hate, but doing something you love because you're creative. But also, isn't that also indirectly, you know, if you think about avant-garde, I would say, you know, avant-garde at the beginning of the century has opened up a lot about the sense of new possibility, even the way of working, mm-hmm. more of a network, less bottom that sort of top-down, more kind of spread. I think they have to do with the way in which people has opened up conversation. Of course. Not necessarily, okay, maybe you cannot register by the book and say, oh, this is how much somebody is worth. But I think the general repercussion in terms of innovation and change is probably you would expect very difficult that. to quantify, I get that. But, but if your only metric is uh, your wage, your, your salary, and uh, what is quantifiable, not quality, quantity, then obviously you have to turn everything into a number including those beautiful experiences you might have during a lecture, during a a messed up uh, experiment in the lab, during a project that you spend three months on and then you fail. How do you turn that into a number? Now, if uh, students uh, um, embodies the the idea that everything they do and they pay for is an investment and therefore they need a return on, uh, we're fucked. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it becomes problematic. It becomes incredibly yeah. problematic. Yeah. And hence, to go back to your point, uh, risk taking. Okay, we have an ethos uh, as as a art and design school of really promoting risk taking. We talk about it. Uh, we share with students. Uh, it's it's all almost like a, a myth. But in practice, do we actually do we actually do that? Do we? I mean, students are increasingly hesitant to to take risk because they they are very they have to calculate how much this is going to cost, how much have I spent already, what is the return. It's always about the future return. So there is a beautiful discourse about risk-taking, the practice. Now, I have great hopes. Let's see the degree show next week, how much risk-taking and bonkers projects we will, we will be you know, exhibited, which might not be commercial, might not be ready for the industry, but they will feel something else within the space of the students. It is quite interesting for me to see how much there is about performative art compared to some time ago, where you know, the art market is very booming, is very rich, is very clear in what people buy and sell. And yet all that idea of performative arts, I'm, I'm thinking of Tino Siegel at the, mm. at the um, Tate Modern, and all that idea of Im, lack of, Im, sorry, sorry, lack of uh, tangibility, the kind of ephemeral and the ephemerality and how that has brought a great success for the Tate. You know, so it seems that in a way, it's kind of uh, oddly polarized on uh, super risk, you know, and whoever take, uh, um, reduces the risk actually has a way forward. And on the other side, this kind of almost a desire, I like when you say there's a mythology of, uh, of risk. Because to me it works also as a, is mythology because it's not happening, but also is a mythology because he has some allure attached to it that of is... Uh, we want to participate too in some way. And I guess that's also what 
pushes a lot of uh, young people to to want to be artists mm. or designers, which of course I'm, I'm using those two terms together because he sent us some artists, but there are two different, uh, very different pathways. Uh, and when I think about risk taking within design, uh, it becomes even more perhaps uh, uh, captured by what the industry requires of them when they graduate. Well, that's another conversation. Which we have as a second. Which we certainly... As a second podcast. Which, which can happen. <laughs> shall I ask you, shall I go maybe back to the question? I think actually we are covering you, you the topic. Choose, and I, I actually quite like this fluidity, but I will do ask you a little bit following so that yeah, our audience that. can understand a little bit our mental so process. So you know you're, we are touching pretty much on everything you, yes, you had planned. Yes, But I think actually, I mean, this idea of risk is fascinating for me because I completely see even in research how once upon a time falsification was very important to falsify a theory a hypothesis was as good as as proving it and i can see how it's moving and we, none of us want to waste time disproving something and nobody has ever been happy about falsifying a hypothesis you formulated but that was also part of the fun well now there's so much attempt even in this project for me to kind of approximate and move you know, there's an investment here, I have to get something out, you know, constantly. And yes. I understand, I think it's very, it's very commoditized way of yeah, looking at ta- everything. Time is another luxury. I mean, we used to have a student always coming to our degree after having done a foundation year. Now the foundation is disappearing from, from, from the curriculum of our students because they see that as a waste of time. Because it costs money. <laughs> yeah. And that part of the podcast, <laughs> I agree with that. It doesn't mean yeah, what I teach yeah. at OCAD in Toronto. You're at OCAD. Ah, OK, sorry. I didn't yeah. remember. It's, yeah. Foundation is gone. Foundation here. Oh, it's a sort of a, sort of a, um, um, how do you call it? A bridge school for international students uh, to learn a bit of English and to learn how people in the West, uh, Western education, think. So it's it's still a foundation of sort, but with very different uh, mission. Mm-hmm. It's not about mm-hmm. uh, you know messing around with all sorts of different techniques mm-hmm. and tools and experiment as it used to be, which was such a great. Uh, which I think is actually this argument, this um, topic that we have selected for you, which is the idea of uncertainty, mm-hmm. really, right? And uh, and one of my first questions before, how did you make sense of our research topic, which we can cover later, for me was uh, as we are talking of risk, is um, if we think of uncertainty now, and if we think of uncertainty for uh, younger generation, what comes to mind? And my curiosity is, is the uncertainty of somebody entering adulthood any different these days to our time or to previous generation? Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in your experience as a, you know, as a mother, as a person, and also as a, as a, as a teacher. I think this is a very, it, it's, it's a very crucial point in, in your research hypothesis, because uh, without unpacking this question, there is a risk of essentializing that thing we call generation, and then assume that it's a, it's, it's a sort of freestanding entity upon which we, of a different generation, project ambitions, desires, uh, and, and also wishes uh, or drives that might not exist. So. This question is also about unpacking that p- 
possible issue, the possible problem that needs to be yeah, untangled before we move on. So either generations are different uh, one from the next, uh, and therefore the premise of this, of this research uh, has a standing. We can observe and say this generation uh, has, uh, is, uh, will do, hmm? or, or generation is a fiction. <laughs> it's an instrument, uh, it's, it's an intellectual instrument uh, to parse reality and parse people in, in reality in order to make them into observable chunks uh, and to decode them, to analyze them, to do a little bit of social science on them, which is perfectly fine because we need to parse reality to understand and then do interpretation. One image that came to mind when I was pondering this question was, uh, can we... Yeah, can we can we imagine each generation as a wave? So, the sea is made of waves. Though you cannot separate each wave from the from the one that came before, the one that is going to come after. And yet, there is a, there is a force, there is a pattern, there is a rhythm, which is also quite uh, it can be incredibly diverse. But let's imagine each generation is a wave, uh, which is also gathering momentum, uh, that may be peaking, crashing, surging, uh, carrying uh, some force. Uh, and if this image holds, uh, then there are internal forces, internal powers, like currents, but also external forces or powers like the wind, mm. let's say. So if each generation is, is, is an individual wave, uh, then we can analyze them. In, in such a way, remembering, retaining the ocean they belong to, one after the other. So observing a generation is about uh, grasping the path, the rhythm of that particular wave, which can be different. Uh, high tide, uh, low tide, uh, is there a storm brewing or it's uh, flat? What's going on in the world right now? Storm is brewing. And what would you say is the rhythm of this generation in your experience? I, 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 I completely, I love that metaphor because it's better than the lens placed on them, which we are attempting to yeah. avoid, even the best intellectual lens. I really think this metaphor holds a lot of truth in it. Um, but And I'm really interested in which one is the rhythm, especially if you maybe take a broader point of view from, you know, your generation or previous generation? I mean, because we are in 2019, I can't help but thinking at those teenagers that were teenagers 100 years ago. Imagine that. You just came out of the First World War and you belong to a generation that probably still alive just by chance and uh, everything around you is is crumbling in terms of the certainties that you might have had in your world society in the future. And society, as you know, it is incredibly traumatized by this event. And of course, yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, I think I have a European perspective, even though it was a world war, but let's keep it European. So there is, there is a social, social, cultural, political scar that touches uh, through individuals and collectives. Uh, if you're a teenager in 1919, uh, what kind of future you can imagine? I don't, have, I don't have an answer, but we know that what came after was either trying to 
recuperate a, a past that did not exist anymore, so to fall into nostalgia and to restore the order that was uh, uh, broken, or to take a path towards nihilism. Everything is dark, the past is awful, the future is really dark. But then, at that point, you have uh, avant-garde. You have, uh, through the darkness, uh, a way to carve new paths that were not given precisely because of the darkness. I'm not making a parallel between then and now. What I'm saying is that uh, every era has their own teenagers, <laughs> and every era might have uh, some gravitational pull around certain events, certain forces, those winds or those currents. So can we identify those, the created current rhythm? Teenagers today, they have to contend with issues that did not exist, of course, 100 years ago. They have acceleration of uh, technologies, even though, of course, 100 years ago, there was another type of acceleration in terms of technology. So you, you, can, you can always draw some, some, some parallel. But let's say that technological acceleration right now feeds uh, of uh, cognitive power, individual and collective cognitive power. And of course, this, not, this does not concern simply teenagers, but uh, everyone. But I cannot help thinking that teenagers, especially because uh, they have never known anything different, that they are the core sort of uh, item of, the, of this cognitive experiment at the planetary level. My daughter, 14, the other day she said to me, we are the first generation that uh, grew up with social media. There is no word, there has never been a word without social media. I have taken uh, her phone away from her. She no longer has uh, access to a smartphone. Different story, not because I'm a Luddite, but because something has to be monitored and, and closely observed. We can't just uh, let it be, even though we do. Now, it's a cognitive experiment at planetary level, and we need uh, resources, uh, intellectual resources, artistic resources, aesthetic resources, poetic resources, to, to cope with this experiment. Because on one hand, it can be incredibly liberating, the creation of communities online, uh, the connection with people that you will never meet, but you feel a bond with, uh, and at the same time, it can be completely alienating. It can push people to suicide. So what is this thing that we humans have created and our, our kids love so much to create something out of that? How do we monitor? How do we um, modulate the use? So I've been thinking, how do we ensure that the balance between following and creating is constantly flowing? Because, uh, and again, looking at my domestic uh, experiment, I can see there is this uh, multi-platforming, uh, um, ongoing uh, hybrid communication, uh, which is happening uh, all the time. Uh, and uh, the list is endless. And it's, and it's, it's an incredible spectacle to behold uh, the way 
young people can uh, listen to some music, uh, FaceTime the friends, uh, and then revise the math uh, on the school portal, uh, follow the makeup tutorial, uh, check uh, the last episode of Friends, uh, which uh, is uh, 25 years old, and then all in this giant pot, just this giant soup, which makes perfect sense to them, and is all simultaneous. I am amazed. Eh? Because there, there is an emergence of sense and signification out of all these practices because there is some creative interpretation in bringing them together and sharing them. And this is, if you want, is, is, the, is, the, is the optimistic view where the agent has a creative input in, 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 in arranging and, and cutting and mixing and, and bringing all these things together. But that's where the, 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 the modulation needs to be observed so that the flow remains intact, because you can imagine the opposite, the not-so-optimistic route where you become a spectator, a consumer, a follower entirely. So your role is to observe and maybe feel really bad about yourself because you are what what is that because you get fomo mm. and you enter the world of fomo and it can become really really dark it can it can really create a, a lot of mental health problem so how that uh, artistic uh, flow can be cultivated and nourished uh, I don't know the answer, but I know it's something that has to be done. To keep, and you said, the, the, I completely understand, it's a very, I let you talk because you're very fluent, but also because I'm trying to catch up with what you say, because I do understand what you mean in this sense of flow between uh, almost being a subject and becoming an object of, the, of, of your own making or of the social experiment or the mm -hmm. planetary experiment making. And I can see how that can become one or the other really literally on the span of a second. You yes. can go one way or the other. Yes. When you talk about um, planetary experiment, it's such an interesting term. Can you tell me a little bit more about what is your imagination or what is... Uh, why did you choose the word planetary experiment? Because, uh, because the impact of digital technologies uh, is planetary and not simply because there are I should check my figures. Uh, how many billions uh, are using social media? Billions, okay? Um, and even, uh, even if there are millions, uh, or even if there are billions of people that do not own uh, a smartphone or a laptop, or they don't have access, but they're still part of the same global economy because uh, even if they can't participate, they certainly are at the, other, at the other side of the spectrum, which means they might belong to the extraction zones, so they might live in, in, in the, in the explo exploitation of labor that afford the planetary digital world as we know it. But that's not the point. I'm saying this because it's planetary. It concerns the planet. The, the digital infrastructure, which is very material, because it's made of cables, uh, optic fibers, huge uh, data centers, servers uh, all over the world, uh, this is made of uh, tangible artifacts that are crisscrossing the planet. It is an experiment uh, because uh, 
which of course has also a connotation of curiosity. It is an experiment because uh, really we users, but not even the, say, the Silicon Valley top companies that are creating this world, uh, literally creating it, designing, um, coding, uh, developing software, uh, writing that particular algorithm that tells you, Massa, you really want to read this? And you go, yeah, of course, I do. I love it. They're creating it. Eh? Um, it is an experiment because nobody knows, not even them. They don't know. We don't know what is going to happen. We don't know. Pure uncertainty. Pure uncertainty. It could be an experiment that turns the entire population of the world into um, addicted zombie. So in a black mirror type of situation. A little plug because I, we love it. Uh, or it could be that precisely because of uh, the corporate control uh, over time, uh, attention, uh, what is called the surveillance capitalism, precisely because of that, uh, there's going to be a surge of antagonism, resistance, uh, dropping out uh, of that uh, world of constantly, constantly craving likes, of wanting to be an influencer. Maybe it's going to go in the other way. But we don't know. I'm observing and I'm utterly fascinated. So am I. So if we look at this experiment, right? And I know it's a bit of a tautological question, but and we think about what we have identified as generation poetry, the way we have been talking to you and the way that we are talking to our viewers and listeners. I know it goes into a very, a very morally loaded question, but... How do we see do you how do we see the future shaping up in this experiment? So mm. as we are considering this wave and the forces and the pressure which happen within this larger experiment, right? What's your take? I mean what okay, well, let's rephrase it this way. What's poetic about it? Is there anything poetic? Okay. Um what is poetic about it uh, is the way in which uh, new modes of communications are invented, uh, assembled, uh, and repurposed uh, in ways uh, which uh, I believe to be very creative uh, and also liberating, which is not simply about uh, creating you know, a playlist or putting together a video stream, but it's, it's, it's a way in which, as I said before, all these modes of communication are woven together to create something original and potentially really touching. Now, if something that is created is uh, touching someone else, uh, that's already in the realm of poetry because uh, if it moves you, it concerns affects and sensibility and, uh, and uh, what you feel. And uh, I think that's poetry. Mm. So is in the, if I understand correctly, within this context that we have how outlined with the social experiment or with the planetary experiment, actually, the idea of a change of language is in a way, is part, is it a consequence of it? Is it uh, an instrument of it? But So is that change of uh, language that has the poetry component in it? But can poetry help in some way tilting from being a subject of your own action or being an object? How, how do you see language playing or this rather way of communicating in that potential risk that I also can understand between uh, 
being an author or being a a a passive victim okay maybe poetry can be also a vehicle a channel through which uh, new things can be invented so not simply a mode of expression but also the means through which that expression can be realized i keep on going back to the sort of the bricolage if you, let's use that term in which uh, Um, different platform and different uh, modes of communication are brought together in the world of a teenager to express, uh, to communicate, uh, to share, to offload, uh, to create also that world separate from the adult world, which is very important. So isn't, isn't it perhaps also a way to appropriate uh, means uh, that are given and also in a very controlling top-down way because we have those platforms, they are created for us. Uh, isn't it a way in which those platforms are reappropriated, uh, maybe creatively, uh, in ways that uh, we, can only obs- we as a different generation can only observe, uh, we might not even be able to fully understand uh, because the moment you understand uh, a channel of communication, it's already gone. So you, as an adult observing teenagers, you, you're always in a world of dictionaries. The moment they're printed, they're out of date. So if they're generous, they can, they, they can give you the update every day, but you will never catch up. That's, uh, I think it's fascinating. I, Yeah, I'm, my mind is kind of uh, inspiring, like in three million places. Um, at the same time, I I think this 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 issue of um, of the relationship between the language of teenager, let's say, mm. not generation, but teenager, and language that older generation use, but also this coding, I find really interesting when you say things are inevitably top-down, right? Because they are, you know, the optic fiber and the algorithm, and they have to be created by somebody that holds some expertise, Yes. right? And that can potentially, well, not potentially, that manipulates your doing because it enables your things to do. And this uh, completely different take of uh, subversion and uh, deceit in many ways um, as creating layers, creating little bit of a magic trick so that you can appropriate and you mm-hmm. can actually in a way become a subject again of the experience that the structure that you are given yes. in a way and exercise some agency i don't know whether in 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 describing things in this way i am being a too optimistic maybe i also have my filters and i have to acknowledge those but i see that power of subversion that agency exercises through also a myriad of uh, trivial everyday uh, manners. Uh, I see that as something that uh, it belongs to humans, uh, but teenagers uh, might have uh, might have some potential to activate that more because uh, let's not forget they are still released from a series of uh, duties and responsibilities, uh, even though they will never accept uh, to hear this, uh, and I am grossly generalizing here, but the time to pay your rent uh, is, 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 you know, is, is in the future. So there are, there are people in the making, and they just happen to live in this world, uh, which is uh, equally fascinating and incredibly brutal and merciless. But it's also a world, uh, and here I'm, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, uh, it's also a world in which uh, gender, all gender toilets uh, 
have become a normality. I was yesterday at Tate Modern, and this is this is what any institution, any establishment, any building will have and has already. This is the new normal that a teenager will well lives in already in this part of the world, obviously. This is what they register as the normal. This is not extraordinary anymore. It might be still surprising to older generation as something to be celebrated, something that was weighted for many years, as the outcome of struggles, um, human rights fights, uh, claim on identity. And now finally, these objects, uh, these designed objects, uh, these toilets for everybody exist. For a teenager, those struggles, those decades of pain and, and damage, uh, might not, they're not there. What does that mean? It means that uh, it becomes uh, ordinary, as it should. Should is an interesting word. It should be ordinary. It shouldn't be something uh, spectacular or weird or strange. In a fair society, this is what you want. Mm. Is there the risk that normalization means they might not remember or they might not inquire or they might not connect with the struggle that has predated them? The same as I sometimes notice talking to young girls about feminism mm -hmm. and then say, well, feminism has spoiled it without realizing that they can say such a thing to me <laughs> in this context exactly because of that. Yes, of course there is that danger, of course. But the waves that keeps on crashing, to use, you know, to use the same metaphor. So that is about uh, education. So how do you cultivate memory? How do you help uh, or assist the younger generation in uh, locating in history what happened and how what happened affect what is happening now, impacts on what will happen in the future. This is about history. Mm. Maybe history not as, um, not as a subject, not like a stuffy, dusty subject, but like living history. And there are so many different media, so many different channels or environment through which those dots can be joined and shared with younger generations. It's not about making them study history books, because who wrote those books? Mm -mm. There is more history in RuPaul Drag Race than in a lot of history books. I so understand. We need to figure out a number, a variety, an eclectic variety of sources, expert witnesses, if you want, through out of which a very, you know, the complexity of history can be retold and retold again, so we don't end up with just one version. So maybe this is a, a upside of uncertainty in that respect. Or rather, if we, because I was actually thinking about education as you were talking and say, well, if education is uh, through a certain model, which is uh, as a certain character of agency, and people learn from a teacher, and a teacher has certain way to a certain expectation, and it's not everything goes. And for example, the idea of reading books, with great surprise for us, we actually openly hear Generation Poetry tell us we don't read books. You know, mm. we don't. You know, that's not. And maybe they are conflicted about it, but they still say, you know, there is a sense that the modality of learning to your point about the cognitive power and the mm. cognitive shift is changing. So 
easy now for uh, older generation or for the educator to intercept the new way? Or is it to try, is there something that we should do to bring them back to some place? Like uh, bring them back to reading books. Exactly. Put it simply, yes, because there's a part of me when I hear this that kicks and scream. You know, I literally want almost to jump and kill them. But then I do realize that as an, if I was an educator, which I'm not, I would think, well, is my role as an educator to be um, able to engage with them? And the scope of education, is it action? You know, is it action beyond knowledge? And if that is the case, shall I find a different way to intercept this uh, multifaceted, zombie-esque-like, yet extremely subversive way of, of learning. Which means to adapt uh, whatever is the content you want to share to the most suitable media that you can use uh, to reach your target. Mm. And if the target is uh, teens uh, who openly declare no, we don't read books. What do you do as an educator? You do workshops. You workshops those ideas in ways they are close to their experience. You create uh, activities that make them go, oh yeah, I know, I do this. I, I've seen that, I heard this. And you, you sort of bypass uh, the format, uh, read this uh, and then repeat it to me or write a summary, which is what academia does uh, increasingly really badly, obviously. <laughs> I am, am also struggle with my own students uh, who are not teenagers, but they're young adults uh, to make them read books. But when they do, they are very grateful for uh, being told, uh, being given the permission to waste time uh, reading. And uh, this has happened to me as an educator many times. Uh, There is a lot of uh, resistance against books, but when they get in, they adore it. But it's also about uh, giving them some permission to, to, to to use time in that particular way, which is no longer a given. I find this fascinating, this subversion of reality where reading a book actually can be seen in academia as a waste of time. It's because a waste of time. It's a waste of time. Yeah, uh, because it's too long, because it doesn't come in, in, bi- in bite-sized chunk, because it's more than three minutes read, because, uh, you know, it's a heavy object you put in your bag. I mean, there are so many ways in which the book is obsolete. And yet, Santa San Martin's library is astonishingly busy. It's, it's a beehive. It's also because we let students really use things, be creative, work together in the library. It's not a stuffy, silent space, but it's full of books that students use. That's very reassuring for a start. It's very reassuring. <laughs> I would feel the, the sudden feel very obsolete with my ways. Although this said, actually, I find it really interesting after we had the chat last time to catch myself doing the multi-modal learning, mm. right? You know, it's, I can say. But I do wonder, um, one thing is, I wonder the component of time, because time mm. came up often, you know, mm-hmm. in, in this short conversation, and also this idea of distraction versus learning. And your what you said about um, not everything goes, but there are boundaries. So for me, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty about how to... Where, where does my multimodal learning become zombie, become me not 
wanting to engage with life mm. and to what extent that actually provides me stimulation to engage with life. Uh, that's very difficult. That's difficult because uh, um, what is known as surveillance capitalism uh, has a single aim, which is uh, to capture time and attention of users, uh, irrespective of age. Capturing time uh, means to be glued to a screen uh, in uh, a series of activities uh, that could uh, span from being incredibly creative because you're doing all this beautiful multi-hybrid platforming with your friends to, on the other hand, spend an afternoon in mindless scrolling Kim Kardashian's Instagram page, which incidentally billions of people do. So these are not a sort of fabulous hypothesis. This is reality. I would say that mindless scrolling cannot be very creative. I'm making a personal judgment here, but we call it mindless scrolling. We don't call it mindful scrolling for a reason. So the, the, there is a rabbit hole where individuals can, can go and, and feel quite a, um, yeah, they can reach a quite a dark place. Uh, from what I have learned uh, looking at uh, technological addiction. I completely get the topic of our talk on uncertainty because these make me feel very uncertain. You know, I'm compelled to ask you a question to try to clarify for uh, whoever is listening to us, but I completely see the experiment of what's happening. And in fact, it's a very interesting lens for me to look at the entire project, you know, is not necessarily generation as much as a poetry experiment in a way, you know, it's just the new communication and how it shapes itself and what it will mean. But I do wonder if actually there are, uh, is there a need, I asked you about signposts before, is there a need to have signposts? Is there a need to have uh, some form of, um, how structure, how would structure apply in this situation? What is, uh, or if you wish, what moral value will define? Wow, okay. Um, signpost, uh, structure, moral value, values um, on one end, and on the other end there is this notion of uncertainty as a space where potential circulates before being actualized. Now these two things are not in opposition, they're not mutually exclusive, which means that uh, we live in a structured society, we live in a structural world uh, within which uh, individual and collective pathways enters co constantly spaces where uncertainty is uh, ripe. Now, when dominant discourses appropriate the space uh, of uncertainty in order to commodify it uh, or to um, reinforce uh, existing structure, existing scaffolding, whether they're institutional discourses, uh, etc. But in order to capture the space of uncertainty and uh, preempt uh, possible choices, that's when structures uh, becomes, uh, becomes, uh, an, becomes something that dev devours humanity, becomes uh, a cage, becomes a prison structure, becomes constrictive. Hmm. There are a lot of societies uh, like this. There have been in history. Some may say, this is not too, this is like us now, but that's not the point. I see things as being very flowing. So in the, in the same moment in which a structure starts to condense and becomes more controlling, oppressive, surveilling, 
and claiming those spaces where potential might be actualized by making choices, give an example, Amazon recommendations. Precisely in that moment when structures condense, that's when those forces, the breakthrough, they find liminal spaces or little interstices where other juices might flow. That's when that happens. This is not my idea, this is Deleuze and Guattari. So you have this constant dynamic between forces that want to condense and compact and forces that push to expand and, and, and to disseminate. Which is also, if you think about what happens in nature, it's a constant contraction expansion, right? So we are part of those flows, back to those waves. It is, it is a rhythm, it is a pattern. What might change is, uh, in the particular historical circumstances, where are we? Where are those kids? What are the, the, the main pools? What really is happening in that school, in that institution, in that world that they inhabit or we inhabit? What are the main forces? Are they pulling towards more condensation and striped jackets? Or are they at the same time pulling towards creating you know, desire paths somewhere? Mm. And if uh, this happens uh, simultaneously all the time, uh, where are they? Where do we see evidence of those forces cohabiting? Can we go and take photographs? Where are they? How are they manifesting the world? And that's uh, historical time and space. So if you use this, 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 this image, then you, whatever you find in 2019 in London is not the same as you find in 1919 in Paris. Okay? Mm-hmm. So where are those forces? How they weave uh, together. I just saw coming here a poster, a really b- huge billboard posters. It was, it was a play on the word great, and instead of uh, the word great, it was the name of Greta. I can't remember exactly, it was uh, make something great again, but the word was Greta. So it, it, it was about uh, striking for, for climate change. And this is like a billboard, so a space that is normally captured by advertising. So I stopped to look. There were a lot of, there was this huge collage of photographs of um, children or kids uh, or people demonstrating. And I'm thinking, this is also the new normal. This is part of the visual ecology that we all, but especially those teens uh, are exposed to because they are making it. And because that is becoming ordinary, in quote, it's, it's what they do with, with a huge impact. And this is something we must observe and to be very proud of as well. And you, say you, you mentioned observing for older generation or older of us to observe and uh, sort of pay attention. Is there any other, so to speak, responsibility that we have or things that actually we should refrain from doing? I keep on saying the word observer because uh, it's so easy as an educator or as a parent or as a older uh, as an adult to prescribe to to fall into the trap of saying uh, I know better because I was there before which of course we all do so obs- observing is also a way to not simply to observe what's going on in the world, but to observe yourself mm. uh, and to catch yourself before you say those things. Because uh, yes, we have responsibilities. 
going back to the boundaries, we needed to show that there are some boundaries that might facilitate the unpacking of reality, the unpacking of your location as an individual in the world, in education first, then in further education, and then in whatever you want to be in the world, because there are a lot of significant choices that teenagers are called to make when they're really young. Huh? Think about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and study that rather than that. These are really potent choices. So we need to give them, uh, to facilitate uh, the choice-making process, uh, exercising the wisdom that hopefully we have, perhaps we don't, but sharing something that we know. But in a way, that is not pres- prescriptive. It's not judgmental, but ideally should be grounded in empathy and listening because it's a it's a two-way process it's an exchange so it's not just observing it's also listening if we start to listen to that particular generation and of course here i'm thinking as a mother (laughs) it's a microcosm but Listening, it's really about uh, suspending your judgment uh, and creating a space which is uh, maybe safe uh, for, for them to, to open up, to share without fear of being judged or reprimanded instantly because uh, that, could, that is a pattern, let's face it. That was my question. Is it this, um, what you are saying, a general thing for teenager? Or do you think there's a different quality when it gets to teenager right now? That I don't know. Because obviously in thinking about this, I am conflating both my experience as a teenager in the 80s, experience as a mother right now, and my sort of modest insights on this generation. So it's a little bit, yeah, it's a difficult question. I wouldn't know what to say. Um, Let's just uh, assume uh, that there is a transmission of knowledge uh, which, is, which is ongoing uh, from one generation to the next, or from mix of generation. Uh, and that transmission should work both ways as much as possible, which requires humility. Hmm. Something that we, we, we hear often when we speak to teenagers is, um, I don't know if we hear or we feel, is a resistance for, for, from them to let us in. And when we ask, often we have a sense of resentment as uh, you don't listen, you don't listen anyway. That's absolutely correct. Why is that? Is it because listening, listening is an active uh, um, commitment? It's not a passive thing. Just because you're not talking doesn't mean you're, you're listening. So how do you mobilize your capacity to actively listen, which means to perhaps foster that space, to cultivate some, some conversation, but just to, to create the space where the opening can happen. It's not simply listening. It's, it's actively creating something. And there are some tricks. There are some tricks. So you don't ask direct questions, certainly not first thing in the morning. You don't ask direct questions. You use some sort of um, almost a mix between non-verbal communication and mm -hmm, uh uh-huh, oh yeah, this is what uh, 
untold words in in eliciting uh, some sort of a more more organic sharing which perhaps doesn't work very well if you create a, a focus group around the table with microphone and three teenagers and six anthropologists with you know white coat and big lenses that might not, not work. maybe not but but if you just happen to walk by you know a wall uh, by a community center outside the school where there are a lot of uh, kids uh, you know listening to each other headphones uh, and you just hang okay i know you can't do that for obvious reasons but let's let's imagine a situation in which you know them and you can talk to them in a free manner and you can just uh, what are the entry points you can figure out the entry points by moving into their territory which is not just a geographical, it's not space, uh, it's also what is the inner sanctum of every teenager? It's their bedroom. Nobody will ever let you in. So how do you lure them out, but in a way in which they, they keep ownership of their territory and it's enough for them to exercise agency to share something, something they want. You mentioned resentment and resistance, of course, because they're constantly being judged and being told off. And let's not forget, we haven't mentioned school because we're talking about those kids in secondary schools. I mean, that's what they do every day. They have no choice. I'm gonna, this is totally Foucault. This is dis- discipline and punish. Maybe this shouldn't be recorded, but it's... Uh, whether they want it or not, whether they feel going or not, they are being disciplined as bodies to become productive members of society. It's not about trigonometry or Latin. What, what is the use of that? This is this. You have to no, cut this. No, 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 no. But it's it's. Uh, it's, it's okay. It's passport, you know, is uh, why do I need to fill a form for a passport? I we, need to fill a form a... because by, by filling the form, I'm reminded that I need somebody else's authorization. Yes. I, I, I mean, I don't... You have to go to through, through the process, which is, is, is like a, it's like a factory. You enter as a raw matter and you, 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 you exit as a fully formed uh, individuals that can then have access, uh, according to your trajectory, have access to certain uh, preordained, uh, you know, roots. But that's why I personally feel that this uh, language or this planetary experiment, it's um, so powerful because it does defeat, I believe, the very paradigm that are at the base of what learning and mm. communicating effectively means. So if I don't tell you things very properly, sitting straight on my chair, you're not gonna do things, right? That is, is an assumption that is very Taylorian, right? It's a very, very top-down assumption is, if, I'm, if I want you to do something, I better sit straight and tell yeah. you. And then you'll go and do it. Yeah. And you do that with the next person and so on. We are saying this is a communication that is multimodal. It happens through very different channel. We, in our research, see it happens through irony, it happens to meme, it happens to fashion, it happens through art. And none of that look and sound like a Taylorian, I tell you, you tell him. 
Mm-mm. It's completely different. Yet the power that we, I believe we start seeing in the mobilization that we discussed, you know, people in the street fighting for climate change for real, mm-hmm. I think it's a proof that actually somehow they, there's a bit of a reinvention of a model of effectiveness, so to speak. But the system of education hasn't caught up yet. As far as I know, I might make really huge assumptions here because I know uh, in secondary school, all students uh, use the iPad, uh, they make assignments, uh, they create PowerPoint, uh, they use Google Doc, there is a lot of uh, sharing using platform. However, the assembly model, the lecture model, uh, the hierarchical structure where there is a teacher and, 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 and the, the, the group of the pupils uh, who are the learners, uh, that uh, I don't think hasn't has changed for a long time. There are reasons because uh, let's uh, let's also admit that you want to educate uh, these people, but obviously they're also seeking other forms of education. They're finding it, so it's a uh, it's more of a misalignment or something that uh, still needs to catch up. But even at university level, we do lectures. I, I do lectures, so I'm standing in front of an auditorium with maybe 100, 200 students, and I talk for an hour. Okay, I'm showing slides, PowerPoints, of course. And it's my job to keep attention alive for that hour. But, and this is a conversation that is very, it's, it's, it's very now, it is happening. Is this a still a realistic model of sharing, communicating, tran- transmitting knowledge? It is functional. Let's let's bring all those bodies uh, in the same room at the same time, uh, and someone uh, with authority tells them uh, knowledge that they can find online. Obviously, I'm sharing knowledge, uh, bringing together things in a way that they cannot find online. So you can only do a successful le- lecture not if you repeat what. Uh, a book says, uh, or a topic is uh, is uh, is uh, communicated uh, as, uh, but if you present something, putting together unexpected things, they cannot find. That's the value. That's what I do. <laughs> so you're doing the same. Fundamentally, you are saying anything that is uh, like that is uh, only the copy and pasting in a and new what, order, yes, right? Yes, it has to be. It has to be also a little bit entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> a little tiny bit. It's performative. But there is, there is a, I mean, when students, whether secondary school or university, they say, why do I have to do this? I can find it online. I'm actually, I have to admit, uh, yes, uh, that's right. But we need you to be here or to go to school because we need to, do, to we need to create a docile bodies and docile minds. It is really, I, I find this, I mean, I, I remember uh, uh, in high school, we had a very forward-looking teacher at one point, and she was saying, it's really unnatural to read poetry at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's very unnatural. <laughs> and it's true, you know, as beautiful as Dante is, it's still true. It's, you're not completely woken up, your day is about to start, and yeah, it's very functional. I never thought of it It's very make a lot of sense to have everybody in the same room at the same time. But personally, if I think back in history, that has not necessarily always been the model. I know, of course not. If you not. think of sort of the Greek academia and, and the more oral 
rather than written tradition, there is more that more, if you wish, more fluid engagement and more permeable boundaries between uh, in and out, right? It's not the time and the time, but it's time as a fluid component. So I, I know it's long ago. I also know that he has produced some of the, one could say arguably, highest piece of thinking. Of course. And it's a bit like the avant-garde point you were making. So it's really interesting that maybe we are so used to the model that we are currently using in education that it's almost hard to imagine something else, but, oh, let's give them an iPad. And it's a, it's, it's a little bit, but not. It's difficult to imagine different models. However, it's, uh, it is happening. I mean, also historically, there have been always alternative forms of schooling and education, experimental. Um, but increasingly, there, there, there are really um, wide concerns uh, from educators uh, um, in universities, in, in the range of disciplines, that this model is not sustainable. So we have to find interesting, innovative, and creative way to, ways to, to teach, to share, but to create spaces, spaces for learning that are perhaps designed in a different way, designed as a, the physical designer, the structure. Who said that students have to, to come at the lecture and then go home? What if we, we flip teaching? So they, they are at home on their screen, uh, seeing my lecture, then they come uh, and we have a discussion. That exists already. In fact, it's called flip teaching. So you can imagine a lot of blended ways in which you use virtual platforms. Uh, you keep students all over the world at that point. Uh, why do they have to come in? We can use a platform of all sorts to then communicate and to share. Mm -hmm. So, um, but that becomes, uh, you can imagine, these are, they become feral bodies. Uh, they are no longer controlled. There's nothing more anxiety-inducing for certain strata of society than feral young adults' bodies. I, I know that London has a lot of issues and the kids, teenagers here yeah, actually kill each other, so there are you know, justifiable fears. But as, as, as a trope, as a cultural trope, the adolescent body is unruly and needs to be disciplined. It's too free. I we will we'll, we'll, um, yeah. <clears throat> I'm just gonna say we're. Yeah. I have I have one question actually yeah. that I want to ask Betty because it's something that um, the more I'm getting into the discourses of uh, what of what we define generational poetry, the more I'm start getting a sense of the importance of the change of medium mm -hmm. as a way to change behavior, emotion, action, and learning. So I was seeing, um, I, I'm starting understanding, for example, how fashion, mm. it seemed to me to be moving from a place of, uh, very many places, but from a badge to expressing identity, to um, expressing social belongingness, to a place where uh, I think there's more awareness of the communication potential of fashion as a way to lead action. Not that fashion didn't have this, you know, it has throughout, it's a feature of fashion to move into disdain, horror, delight, you know, so it effectively does move behavior. But I'm noticing there is more of that. So for example, I'm seeing more and more clothes having statement on it. So letting my clothes speak. 
And one simple gaze could be, oh yeah, just another trend, you know, we have seen it, you know, we, but I'm just wondering, and fashion is one, but how things that are not traditionally believed to be action points, and with action points, I mean things that really matter, you know, the thing that society says, that's a good thing to do, frivolous thing like fashion, can become actually a tool, almost like a semiotic resource, mm-hmm. actually, to mm-hmm. do more. To create more because they're all is all much more around us than not a lecture or a book right mm-hmm. and i wonder in your experience as a designer researcher and as a lecturer how do you how do you see that i don't know if i explain myself clearly no, no, you have of course uh, um disclaimer is that my understanding or knowledge of fashion is uh, is quite pedestrian I'm not an expert on fashion, but I know about other things you mentioned. So I would say, if we look at that generation, teenagers, let's not forget they don't have a lot of, uh, they don't have a lot of powers. So what they're wearing becomes really crucial because it's the, those are the semiotic channels they use to communicate with each other in ways and with the nuances that we are not able to to uh, decode. At least I can't. Again, this is something I'm observing and uh, I get updates on. But the, 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 the nuances of the language are spectacularly complex, even though... Even though, okay, you see a bunch of, uh, you know, 15 years ago in, 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 in my neighborhood, they all look the same. I have to say this, uh, such a cliche. And I was having a conversation with my daughter, and she pointed to another girl dressed exactly in the same way, and she said, oh, I'm so different from her. She means blah, 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 and I mean blah, blah, blah. I did not... Uh, i could not uh, extract uh, the difference, but for her, and certainly for the other girl, uh, it was made of tiny fragments, uh, tiny little factors. They could read each other. So we are missing, uh, we, as in uh, adults not completely fluent uh, in the very mutable world of uh, teenage fashion, uh, which, uh, yes, as you say, includes a lot of statements, uh, but also a lot of brand statements. Mm. But I, I'm actually fluent because yesterday I spent my entire day reading Teen Vogue. I'm not kidding you. I actually literally spent okay. my entire day being paid for reading Teen Vogue. And it's uh, fascinating. I mean, believe you me, it's fascinating. I didn't even know that Teen Vogue existed. existed. It does, it's a thing. It's, it's a, a thing. thing. Okay. Um, but actually something that really fascinates me is uh, the coding and the decoding and the complexity, yes. But also the awareness that is a tool for action. Because again, for me, it's the change between frivolity, fashion, you study fashion at university or you study physics, it's not the same thing culturally, socially, is way differently in uh, whatever physics means and whatever fashion means. But what I'm, I'm seeing is that there's more awareness of not just the art of fashion that is always being valorized, but also the potential to change things. So moving away from frivolous or best case scenario art into um, action and engineering almost. Mm as literally something that is uh, seriously, is really in the realm of uh, 
the serious, the 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 the, the right, the one that is not bottom of the list of the the right of school, right? Yeah. You know, and I see this embracing the pot- the potential of a new medium of actually of an existing medium that I find quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think it's something that my generation is alerted to, and is it proper reframing? Mm. Is a problem to imagine that actually fashion can change the world, and not like a nice statement, but actually that he has the power mm. to move you to come to a rally or to a protest or a, taking actually positive action. It's quite spectacular for me. It's it's a. Uh It's about making statements with what you're wearing mm. in ways that are entirely conscious. That's what they're I mean. Not, they're not just happening because of mimicry or because someone else is doing it. There is, there is a very conscious effort in owning the language, manipulating the language. And As nobody's watching because it's just fashion. So nobody pays attention. Oh, you just you, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Girl it, stuff. It, Girl it, stuff. It can be very. It can go really unrecorded uh, and unmonitored because uh, on the surface uh, it really looks like oh you're wearing a tracksuit bottom with uh, you know like a Nike, but Is actually it? the way in which the laces of those shoes uh, are patterned sends out messages that only other teenagers can read. Isn't it amazing as closing of our conversation that unmonitored talking of a planetary experiment and monitor it comes up as a bang on world word at the end I of think this need, conversation. We, we need to we need to foster that. Foster ways for unmonitoring to, to, to be to be alive, whether it's teenagers or not. But teenagers they can do it because they they're, they're program to do that so we have to trust them i want this to be said again say it again <laughs> yeah <laughs> because this i think is uh, quite beautiful that's <laughs> right what did what did i say, say? this you, you you said um we have to foster the unmonitored ah yes and you were and i think it would be really interesting to maybe expand a bit on why because you say but teenager are the um, so i i'm not i'm not constructing the argument well but There's something about this idea of unmonitored as, uh, sorry, I mean, this is just my thinking, right? Is, uh, is the unmonitor, is the missing word that I haven't come across yet and really excites me? So, <laughs> Because we talk about fostering, we talk about this dialogue and we talk about the boundaries and never, not, not everything goes, but equally. But this unmonitored, because unmonitored is really interesting because he, he implies monitoring implies and not doing a, it. Implies eschewing, implies, is that a word? It implies uh, um, not being monitored, operating below monitoring, uh, either because you're using a language that you can only share with your own tribe, and uh, perhaps uh, the notion of tribe, tribalism, which is being uh, in social sciences like a recurring theme, uh, it should be reappraised uh, because even though it's a little bit dated but it, it really works well to to frame the way in which certain languages are used below the radar and therefore the communication the content including the noise is effectively unmonitored and everything might happen and it's in a sense is uh, going back to the planetary this is before capture because let's not forget that you know 
a lot of fashion um, becomes established and mainstream because uh, it harvests uh, precisely from those languages when they're circulating before being monitored. The capture is, okay, from now on, I see you. And then I can take this and maybe sell it back to you. But teenagers are that force. I don't want to romanticize and say they're this primal, vital force, but in a sense, also physiologically, they are, they are expanding, they are growing, they are morphing. So they are really powerful creatures. So would it be a, a thought if we were to say that the wave the the wind that is blowing in uh, the generational ocean is this monitoring for all intent and purposes this um this um this ramification of connection we were talking about this uh, planetary experiment we are all part of and if that is uh, toward to use the word I hate zeitgeist of the time then it's made quite interesting how being a teenager is the best thing you can be. Do you, do you understand what I mean? It's the best thing you can be in that. In that world. In that world. In a way, being a teenager is the best modality to navigate that world. That's a really interesting thought, which means that teenagers must become your key advisors. Yes. I, I, I mean, for me, this is quite mind-blowing because I, so far in my research, I haven't come up with this idea of, but the ammonia, because they ask us over and over, why, and that's why I'm asking you, why are they different or it's just been a teenager and why teenagers are changing the world and blah, blah, blah. And I also have the fear of I fall into a romanticized view or an nihilistic view and mm. what is on me of my fear and desire. But... I wonder if actually the modality, and I do believe what, I love this idea of a planetary experiment because it's so true. And there is actually an element of uncertainty in that and an element of uncertainty of who's watching, who's creating, who's writing the algorithm, who's there. And me, as a non-teenager, have to learn to navigate it regardless. Yeah, exactly. But I'm not as well equipped as a teenager. That's what I mean. That's why then a teenager from Generation Poetry, Yes, it's changed the world and I don't. We need to learn how to navigate, sometimes even in the most obvious technical manner, something that teenagers can do intuitively. But it's not just the technical expertise, it's, uh, it's the language. It's, it's, the, it's the way in which the, all those bits, they're floating, they're taken on board, appropriated and owned in a way that we, we're struggling yeah. to, 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 to do. In fact, I don't even try personally. Mm. But that doesn't mean that I, I want to pass judgment or I want to say, well, because I cannot do it, that has no value. Mm. But also if you think about, if you go back in time and you think about uh, a more industrial culture where the challenges are different mm -hmm. than a culture where data are the challenge, right? Where data, bit and pieces are the challenge we face, you know, the, the, the thing that sells, sells things to us, condition our life, who we are, how we fragment, how we see ourselves. Once I'm in, broken into data, who am I? I see something different of myself. And if that is the key challenge, then I find it really very interesting that in that, what makes you do well is definitely not what made you do well 
in a place where that wasn't the challenge. I'm explaining myself really badly, but yeah, you I, need I, different I, I can, tools. I can see, but I, mm. then I can see why I look at them like zombie, and they look at me as uh, I'm not entirely sure that if I were to behave as you do, as you wrote yourself, the signposts that you have. Well, what did you bring you? And most of all, where would they bring me? Yeah. If this is the situation in which we are. Not situation, if this is the world in which we are, which is a, a world that is is a, a monitoring world. It's right? a monitoring world. And teenagers are completely aware of that. That's what I mean. But the teenager is also aware normally. So yeah. as a teenager, you are aware of normally because your parents monitor you, even at my age. Mm-hmm. You know, what have you done? What you... Uh, Have you had sex yet? Or, you know, it, the monitoring is of teenage. But if the world becomes the world of monitoring, then being a teenager, as I said, is the best thing that can happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> This day and age. And, and to me, that's explained why I see them so fluent. Uh, and I think everybody that relates to teenagers has this feeling of, I think I've seen it in many people, this feeling of maybe they're right. I, they, they, I think they puzzle me, certainly. I'm very puzzled by... Yeah. Well, we need to trust uh, to trust them and to trust the idea that they are right uh, because there is no other way forward. Thank you so much. It was absolutely an enchanting conversation and uh, it has been a, a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.